Um, Ephesians chapter two, <laughs> verse one through ten. Ephesians chapter <laughs> Ephesians chapter two, verse one through ten. Okay, really, really looking forward to it. <laughs> Both <laughs> reading the scriptures and dunking our pastors. Um, Ephesians chapter two, verse one through ten says this: "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins." in which you once walked, following the course of the world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, in carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What I want to title this message and title this series that we're about to walk into is But God. But God. I'm going to be speaking about two things. One, man's issue. And two, God intervenes. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord, we love you and we need you and we glorify you and we honor you and we make your name great in this place. Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, be glorified in this place. And Lord, if you're not glorified in any other heart, be glorified in this heart. Spirit, if you're here, which we believe that you are, you can change everything. You can change anything. And Lord, we give you permission to change everything and to change anything. Meet us, God. Your presence is what we need. So meet us, Lord. I'm asking that we would decrease and that you would increase. You're welcome here, Spirit. And we love you. We love you so much, Father. 
And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for your prayer. But God, but God, we're going to... Uh, we're going to preach for the next few weeks. Is that cool? Um, we're we're, we're, we're going to be in a series called But God. And this series um, is really about the idea and taking a look at the places in Scripture where we find a but God. We're going to be looking at all the places where God has intervened, has inserted himself into the plight of humanity. Now, if you really think critically about this, there are countless places in scriptures where we can point and say that God has intervened. If you really consider God has always been intervening from the beginning, he has instituted and he has implemented his will and made an effect in the earth from Genesis to Revelation and even beyond. There has been a but God. And we're going to look at a few places in scripture where we see that Prominently, firstly, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, one of the biggest but gods you're going to find in Scripture. Paul is writing and he's giving this explanation of who we were before Christ and then who we are after Christ, what God has done in the life of every single believer. And I'm in a practice recently of substituting the word but with the word and in my conversations. I feel like when I use the word but oftentimes it can seem a bit invalidating of what I said before, if you know what I mean. That, that you're in a conversation and then when you give a statement and then you follow it up with but, it can seem like what you just said before doesn't really matter. If you, if you consider, you can say man, that was a great presentation, but you kind of missed all the important information, right? Or, or, or maybe you're like, man, I loved the art. I loved what you just produced. It was, it was so beautiful, but I didn't really get it. Or you might be saying like, I, um, like this was such a fun date, but I think we should just be friends. <laughs> Right? It seems like as soon as you say, but, everything that came before doesn't really matter that much. And I'm in a practice now of trying to honor people with my words, trying to encourage them in who they are, not just what they do. And I've often seen that when you use the word but, or when I've used the word but, it has seemed to kind of shine a dark spot on those areas and focus really on what I'm trying to get across. And when you look in scripture, God isn't like us because when we see, but God in scripture, it's not God invalidating what came before. It's simply God overcoming what came before. You see, God is not focused on ignoring what happened before you were in Christ or forgetting your life before Christ. The scriptures do not focus our attention on ignoring that part. It focuses our attention on examining who we are in Christ now. We're not meant to ignore who we are. We're meant to, or ignore who we were. We're meant to focus on who we are. In this but God, 
is God overcoming everything that we were to make us who he ultimately intended for us to be. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, in these two words contain the whole gospel of Christ. But God. God inserting himself into our lives. It's not that the thing that came before wasn't true. It's that there is something that's more true that comes after. Sometimes we get so caught up in what came before that we don't even have enough hope for what might come after. Man's issue. You see, man's issue simply is this, that we need a savior. That's the issue. The issue is that you're in trouble and you need someone to rescue you. Now, I can't rescue you. Your friends can't rescue you. Your parents can't rescue you. Your job can't rescue you. Your bank account can't rescue you. The issue that none of us in this room can rescue each other is because we're all in the same burning building. We're all headed for the same direction and the same consequence, if not for someone else outside of the situation to bring us out of it. We need a savior. Now, we are committed at this church to help people understand, anybody that's watching online or is in this room right now, to help you understand that this stage can't save you. This worship team, as great as it is in their ministry to the Lord, in their ministry towards you, in helping us worship Jesus in quality and in excellence and in spirit and in truth, as well as they do it, they can't save you. As well as anybody preaches from this stage, no matter what word they say, no matter how convictingly they say it, no matter how anointed that they are, they in themselves, no matter what words that they preach, they can't save you. The only one who can save you is the one who inserts himself into your life, who came out of the situation to go into the burning building and save you from it. We need somebody to save us. Now, Paul's giving us this issue that if you need somebody to save you, that you are in danger. And and it's not just talking about some of us. Listen, Paul says, this is in which you all once lived. (laughs) He says you were dead in your trespasses, and he's not saying that you had an issue, that there was a problem, that you had a mishap, that you needed an eraser. No, he's saying that you were dead. You weren't just wrong. You weren't just in in a predicament. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, we weren't sitting, we weren't meandering, we were walking these things out and following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that Satan has a level of power in this world. And guess what it says, that you weren't just ignoring him, you weren't just living your own life, you weren't just living your own truth, you were following Satan. Now... And he's at work, that spirit, he's at work within the sons of disobedience. (laughs) You see, when the scriptures point out um, and say you are a son of something, it is saying that you bear the image or the likeness of that thing. So you, you consider Jesus. Jesus comes and he says he is the son of man. 
as in he is bearing the image or the likeness of man. Or you go to his other title, he says that he is the son of God. You find that Jesus claims that he is bearing the image and the likeness. He is a visual representation of what God looks like. Or maybe you look at the Gospels and you find two of Jesus' disciples, the brother James and John. And if you know your scriptures, what? Jesus gave them a nickname. And what was their nickname? The Sons of Thunder. There was something about James and John where their personality, demeanor, they had the aspect, the likeness, the image of thunder. But that's not what we are called. You look in Ephesians chapter 2 and it says, we were more like the sons of disobedience. We were bearing the image and the likeness and the nature of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. We all once lived. We all once lived. That means that if you were born in the church, you were born into sin. That means that if you have been reading your Bible for a really long time, guess what? You were part of that all once lived. That means that if you've been giving all of your money for as long as you can remember to the church, guess what? You were still born into sin. That means if you have been the best husband or the best wife or the best employee or the best parent you can ever imagine to be, and you were better than the generation that came before you, so that thinks that makes you think that you're better than everybody else now, guess what? You still once lived in sin. No matter who you are, if you grew up in church or if this is your first time, you once lived in sin. All of us. There's no escaping it. Following the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and we're by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Saying you were no exception. I know we think that we're a baby a little bit better than everybody else on average, but you were no exception. Probably not the encouraging word you wanted to hear coming into church today. But say it with me. But God. You see, the scriptures don't ignore who you were. They focus on who you are. That we were walking in this way and now God has made us something that we were not. You see, God inserts himself into our lives and he actually makes a way and he becomes the strong one, the savior, the redeemer, the restorer of our lives. The point of your life is not for you to be strong. It's for God to be strong. <laughs> you see, Strength is not a strength in the kingdom of God. Weakness is. And weakness is not a weakness in the kingdom of God. Strength is. Why? Because the scriptures teach that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As if to say, if you are strong enough for yourself, you don't need God to be. 
And God is saying, I'm not looking for people who are incredibly strong and have no issues, who are perfectly pristine and have been in church and are coming just to show off all of their works-based righteousness before an entirely holy God, which it doesn't even hold a candle to. He says, I'm not looking for that. I'm not interested in that. He says, I'm not looking for you to be strong. I need you to realize that you're actually weak, which makes me put myself in the position for you to be, to be strong for you. You're not the hero of your own story. God is. You're not the main character of your own story. God is. You're not the protagonist of your own movie. God is. You're not the captain of your own ship. God is. And he's saying, if you would submit to me, if you would follow me, if you would realize that weakness isn't a weakness in the kingdom of God, strength is then we would allow God to step in. I feel like some of the reason why some of us haven't seen God step into our lives is because we are already there. And God's not going to occupy the same place that you do. He's saying, either I'm Lord or you are. Either I'm in charge or you are. There's no in between here. And I'm not going to share space of God and Lord in your life. It's either me or not. Man's issue. There was um, a man in Judges chapter 7, Gideon. And Gideon was this man who was raised up by God to be a savior for the people of God. And at this time, if you read in Judges chapter 7, you find Gideon is... Um, uh, being overcome and overwhelmed by the Midianites, this people who were oppressing and, and stealing from and attacking and, 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 and just uh, uh, making the life of the people of God miserable. And you find in Judges chapter 7, Gideon being uh, the youngest man and the youngest tribe in his whole family. When we meet Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press which is to say that he is hiding away. You're not supposed to thresh wheat in a wine press. You're supposed to put grapes in a wine press. And for some reason, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's terrified of what the Midianites might do if they catch him out in the fields actually doing what he's supposed to be doing, where he's supposed to be doing it. And the first thing that the Lord comes to Gideon and says is he says in Judges chapter 7, he says, hello, mighty man of valor. Because God does not just speak to you as you are now. He speaks to who you will be. He calls him a mighty man of valor. And as he calls him this mighty man of valor, Gideon gets up and God raises up an arm and he says, I'm going to deliver you guys from the Midianites. This amazing story, this beautiful story. And as he does this, what happens is that Gideon gets this army of over 30,000 men. The Lord looks at him and he says, all right, all right, all right, that's great. You're going to go defeat the Midianites. But the issue is that you have too many men. Gideon looks at God and he says, I don't think you know how war works. <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> God says, no, 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 that's not the point. I, you can tell everybody who's scared in your army to go home. Gideon says, all right. So Gideon says, if you're, if you're scared and you want to go home, you can leave. 20,000 men, gone. Gideon is like, okay, 10,000. Okay, 10,000. Got it, got it, got it. Then God looks at Gideon and his 10,000 men. He says, all right, all right, cool, 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 cool. Um, you still have too many people. Gideon says, what are you trying to do here? 
He says, all right, well, I'm going to take you guys down to the river. If a man drinks water in a certain way, he has to go home. If a man drinks water in a different way, then he can say and he can fight with you. From 10,000 men, the men go down to the river. Gideon leaves with 300 men. Gideon is looking at God, I'm assuming, and saying, God, what's, what's going on here? What, why, why are you doing this to me? In Judges chapter 7, verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see, sometimes God lowers your fighting power to reveal your true fighting power. Man's issue is that adequacy oftentimes leads to arrogance. And if you're good enough, God doesn't have to be. If you don't think that God has any place in your life and you be, feel like you don't need a but God, then God will say, fine, go ahead. This is yours. But God was lowering Gideon's fighting power to reveal where his true strength came from. There was an issue. And the issue is man often thinks that he is the hero of his own story. When we are not. We are not the hero. We are not the captain. We're not the one who gets the glory. And God says, I need to to insert myself into your life to show you. But God. Hmm. Wow. See, the enemy will try and tell us that we need to be ashamed of our need for God. That If you aren't good enough, strong enough, equipped enough, competent enough, then that's something to be ashamed of and then to work on so that God will receive you more freely. When in reality, God is not looking for experts in any area. He's looking for those who are available. He's looking for people who would allow him to step into their lives, to step into verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2 and say, I am dead. I am lost. There is no hope. I am going the wrong way. I don't know what to do. I'm not enough in myself, but I think that you are. I was um, whitewater rafting with my friends when I was a kid. And, uh, as we got to this river, um, if you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know how potentially dangerous that it can be. And I don't really know why we do it for fun. Like it's a very dangerous activity and you go whitewater rafting and these, these, these rivers and these waters, just rocks everywhere and moving water quickly everywhere. And I remember as our um, instructor was teaching us, he was saying, all right, now if you fall out of the boat, you do this. And if you make sure you do this and paddle when I say paddle and turn when I say turn and dug and hold on when I say hold on. And he was teaching us amazing, but I was also like 12. So it just went right over my head. So we get down into this river and we're going down all these rapids, having the time of our lives. And I don't really know what happened, but all I remember is that one moment I was in the boat and then the next moment, I was out of the boat. And I'm realizing, I'm seeing myself in the river. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And all of the instruction goes way out the window. Like, I let go of the paddle. I start trying to grab on the rocks. I don't know. I'm probably like face down in the water. I don't know what I'm doing. And there was this moment where I look. And I'm like, I can't swim. Like, you have a life jacket on, but that does nothing, right? It's throwing you under the water. I'm like, I have no hope. There are rocks on this side, rocks on that side, rocks on this side. And I am just heading straight for them. 
And as I'm heading straight for these rocks, all of the sudden, in like the blink of an eye, I guess it was my instructor, he just grabs my vest, pulls me right out of the water, and puts me right back into the boat. And as he put, glory is right, I could have died. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, that was it for me. And so I'm, I'm sitting in this boat and I'm like, oh my goodness, like that was it. This is my life. And I really consider that that is the same way that our life was going in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That we were in the water. We were heading for destruction. We were in addiction. There was no way out. I had a problem on my right, my left, behind me, and in front of me. There was an insurmountable mountain. I couldn't move. I wasn't just heading in a bad direction. I was heading in the direction of hell. But... God, he pulls me right out of the water and takes me right into the boat and says, I'm going to be the thing that comes out of this situation and pulls you out. I know that you can't help yourself. I know that you're in trouble. I know that you need help. So let me insert myself into your life. If I heard somebody say, but God, I wasn't going in a bad direction. I was headed for destruction. You see, but God is the key between destruction and destiny. That God will insert himself into your life when you are going the wrong direction, when your family's falling apart, when you don't have enough money, when your life is still in the same place you said it wouldn't be five years ago, when you're still trying to figure out how to read your Bible, when you don't know if you still can come to church every week, when you feel dirty from the sin you did last week. He says, but God... But God, he pulls us out of the water and he brings us into the boat and he equips us with what we need to continue on the mission. See, man's issue will automatically lead to God's intervening. And God intervenes into our life and God will graciously interrupt your life. He'll see the condition that you're in. And he's not going to ignore it. He's going to overcome it. It's not diminishing the time that you were there. It's not invalidating the experience or the reality in which you experience life. God is saying, I'm going to not invalidate it, but overcome it. There's no one like Jesus. His mercy wouldn't let him sit still. It says in scripture, a lot of different places, what God does, that he heals people, that he restores people. It says that he does a bunch of miracles and that he redeems and reconciles us. Even in places in scripture, it tells us how God does things. It says that he, he raises up prophets or that Jesus was a sinless lamb sacrificed before the foundations of the world. It tells us how God does things sometimes. He raises up leaders to deliver his people. He establishes the church to help us grow. He does things in a certain way. And here we find why God does something. If you want to know why God inserts himself into your life, all you have to do is look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy and because of the great love 
with which he loved us. You see, God intervenes into your life because of his mercy and his great love. And the thing about mercy is that it does not depend on you. You can't earn mercy. You can't work for mercy. You can't deserve mercy. And that works in a way where you're saying, man, that's really discouraging. But think about it in the inverse. You can't lose mercy. You can't forfeit mercy. You can't forget mercy. Why? Because he intervenes not because of you, but because of him. God gets glory by saving you. And you give glory back to God by acknowledging I couldn't do it by myself. God's mercy always stems out of his love. If you find in scripture, it says that God is moved by compassion. He's moved by compassion. In 1 John, we find that God is love. Jesus is love and he is rich in mercy. His mercy is always stemming out of his love. And you will realize then, if it always comes from him, it won't run out. His mercy endures. It's new every morning. That means that God's action to intervene into your life is not based on your performance. It's based off his mercy. So when you understand that God's mercy will be the thing to intervene into your life because of his love, you can be encouraged because you can't lose it. You can't deserve it. You can't win it and you can't forfeit it. It's his mercy. That's why God intervenes. It's because he loves you. And his love for you is not because of you. It's in spite of you. His love stems from himself. God's actions are motivated by his mercy not by your performance. See, when we see but God in scripture, I want it to remind you that it simply just means God's not done. But God means that God's not done. Or maybe hear it this way. But God means it's not over. You look at Luke chapter 7, you find a story of Jesus walking through this town called Nain. And as he's walking through this town, he heals Jairus' daughter and he's on his way to do many more miraculous things. And he runs into this funeral procession that's going down the road. As he's going down the road, what happens is there's this woman and we realize and we find out through Luke's gospels that this woman is a widow. She has no husband. And her only son now has passed away. There's a crowd around her and she's planning to bury her son and she's carrying him in this beer, a casket down the street. Jesus recognizes or takes note of the woman and he walks up to her. And you realize in this story, if you understand the context of what this meant for women in antiquity is that if you had a husband, he was the sole provider. And if your husband passed away, then that means that your son would be the sole provider. Because there was no honorable way for women to honestly make money by themselves. So when we look at this story, it's not just a funeral for the son, but it's also a funeral for the mom. It's a funeral for the life that she dreamed of living. 
It's a funeral for her hope. It's a funeral for what she thought life would be. My husband is gone. My son is gone. I don't even know how I'm going to live from here on out. And in Luke chapter 7, we see Jesus encounter the woman. And it says in Luke 7, 13 through 15, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, stemmed from his love. And he said to her, Do not weep. And then he came and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. See, I don't know if there are any situations in your life where you feel like it's dead. It's hopeless. This is just the way it's going to be from now on. My desires and the dreams that I had or the life that I lived before the pandemic, it's just gone. I don't know how life's ever going to get back to normal. I think this is just how it is. My family, I guess, is just heading towards destruction. This is the funeral. My, my bank account, I guess, is just heading towards destruction. This is the funeral. Maybe my relationships and my friendships, I have no good ones anymore. All of them left me. I guess it's just heading towards destruction. I guess this is the funeral. Man, it's my age. It's my old age. It's my young age. It's my competency. It's my failures. All of these things. I guess I'm just heading towards destruction. This is what it is. It says, but Jesus had compassion on her. And remember that, but God always stems from God's love. And all it took was one touch from Jesus. And that one touch simply said to this woman, it's not over. I'm not done. You're still here. I'm still working. It's not over. I'm not done. It's not over. I'm not done. I know you might think it's over, and I know you might be tempted to believe I just need to hold the funeral for this thing, but God is saying it's not over. If you're still breathing, God's not done. He's saying, I'm still working in your life. I'm still working in your family. I'll still work in your bank account. I'll still work in your mind. I'm still going to work on that addiction. I know you think this is just a funeral, and we're heading towards the end, but when God is there, there's a but God that stems from his compassion. It is not because you deserved it. It might not even be because you asked for it, but it's because God inserts himself into your life and says, if I'm here, I'm not done. It's not over. It's not over. It's a but God. It's a but God. You see, God stops what should have happened. That's what he does. If I consider, and maybe you've considered, like if I was left to myself, if I was left to myself, and God didn't intervene, some of us, are feeling these emotions because we know, I know exactly where I would be. But I know exactly what my family would look like. And I know exactly what, my, what I would be doing. And I know exactly how I would be acting. And I know exactly where I would be. If it had not been for a God who is rich in mercy, I know exactly where I would have been. Because I should have been lost. Lost. 
I should be ashamed. I should be broken after what happened. I shouldn't be able to trust people anymore after how they treated me. I shouldn't be able to desire a family after the broken one that I was born into. I shouldn't be able to hope for a future that God has promised me. I shouldn't think that I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. I should, but if it had not been for God, I know exactly where I would be. But God, see, he steps into the situation. He's in the middle of your situation. And he says, I know where you would be. And I don't want you to be there. And I know you'd be there if it wasn't for me. See, but God simply says, I know I can't, but I know that he can. It's the gospel in a sentence. I know what I deserve and I know what he did. I know who I am, but I know who he is. And the issue that so many of us face is that we are so acquainted with our sin and brokenness and selfishness and pride and lust and envy and greed and and, and all of these issues that we carry. We're so associated and intimately involved with it that our biggest fear is that we would be fully known and because we're fully known, we're not fully loved. That if you really knew me, you wouldn't really love me because you don't know me like I know me. And I know me and I still have problems loving me. And if you think that you love me, you probably just don't know me well enough. And if you know me really well, you might leave. Our biggest fear is that I'll be fully known and not fully loved. And the scriptures say that God has fully known you. He's fully acquainted with Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 of your life. And he fully loves you. See, the enemy will always lie to you and tell you facts at the same time. Have you noticed that? Like, he'll be giving you the history of your life, which are facts. And he'll lie to you in the same sentence. And that's why he's a deceiver. That's why he's so tricky. What do I mean? I mean this. He'll say, you failed out of college. Fact. You're dumb. Lie. He'll say, he'll say this. He'll say, you got drunk again. Fact. See, you don't really love Jesus. Lie. He'll say, he'll say look, you gave in to lust after you said that you wouldn't. Fact. God doesn't love you. Lie. Your kids are acting crazier than you did at their age. Fact. (laughs) Oh, man. That hit (laughs) y'all. And then he'll follow it up with, see, you're a bad parent. Lie. The enemy will try and trick you by telling you a fact and telling you that it's the truth. And there is just a truer truth. That yes, that is what I did. And no, that is not who I am. God has made me to be something else. And it's because of his grace. 
It's not because of what I've done. It's in spite of what I've done. So now I can look at the facts head on and I won't be ashamed to try and cover myself to make myself strong. I can say, no, that's exactly what I did. But God fully knows me and he fully loves me. And he has given his son up for me that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I don't have to hide what I've done because God has made me who I am. I'm not going to listen to the facts anymore. I have a truer truth than I know that God has spoken over me. Don't give in to the lie of the enemy. Let God insert himself to say, I fully know you and I fully love you. And the enemy will always try and discourage you with listing what you did and lying about who you are. And God will encourage you by listing what he's done and telling you who he is. If you're trying to discern the voice of the enemy versus the voice of God, it's a simple question. Whose resume are you looking at? Are you looking at yours or are you looking at Jesus's? Because the enemy will tell you lies after lie after lie and base it off of your performance. But God will tell you truth after truth after truth because he bases it off of his performance. Where would I be if not for his grace? Carrying me lifting me, holding me, bringing me through. And who is this Jesus who has seen me in my entire brokenness and has decided that that, even though it's what I deserve, it's not what I Even though I am trapped in that river, floating downstream with no help in and of myself. He says, I'm going to insert myself into the situation. And I'm going to take you out of it. But God says, I know I can't. But I know that you can and the response to this message in this series can't be, I'm going to morally be better. It can't be, I'm going to try harder. You don't leave this room saying, wow, that was cool. The appropriate response is when Jesus lifted Peter out of the water and brought him in the boat and it says, and they worshiped God, saying, who is this? The response that we have is, I know exactly where I would be without his grace. And he thought it fit to save me, to rescue me. You see, your job is not to rescue yourself, redeem yourself, reconcile yourself, restore yourself. Your job is to be rescued, to be reconciled, to be restored, to be redeemed. And in that truth, we respond by saying, God, who am I that you would save me? Who am I that you would insert yourself into my life? You're holy. I'm unholy. You're righteous. I'm unrighteous. You're pure and I'm 
dirty. I don't deserve to be saved. I am in this position of my own consequence. And God is saying, those are all the facts. But there is a truth that I'm speaking over you today. And that truth is that there's a love that has gone further than you. And it's not from your actions so that no man can boast. You have too many in your army. God says you need less firepower to show where your true strength comes from. And if I would take away your strength to show you mine, you could respond out of worship. And you would say, who is this God who has saved me from my own sin? Who saved me from my own punishment? Who brought me out of the thing that I deserved and brought me into the kingdom of God? Who said that I find them worthy and I find them beautiful? Who still sings songs of deliverance over me? Who says I have sinned worse than I could ever imagine? But I have been gracious to you more than you could ever imagine. Who is this God? Where would I be without his grace? Here's the thing, I know exactly where I would be. And I worship God that I'm not there. And I want us to take a moment. I don't know what it looks like for you, but to worship God, I don't know if it's sitting, I don't know if it's kneeling, I don't know if it's standing, I don't know if it's crying, I don't know if it's journaling, I don't know if you're praying, I don't know what you're doing, but I want us to take a moment to worship God that we aren't where we should be because of God. I should be ashamed. I should be broken. I should be lost. But God... would I be if not for your grace carrying me through every season where would I be if not for your grace you came to my rescue and I want to thank you for your grace. Oh, and where would I be if not for your grace? Carrying me through every season. Lord, where would I be? If not for your grace, you came to my rescue, and I want to thank you for your grace that restores, your grace that redeems, your grace that releases me to worship.
not for your grace carrying me in every season Lord where would we be if not for your grace you came to my rescue Lord we want to thank you yes you came to our want to thank you and you came to my rescue and I want to thank you for your grace grace like a river your grace Jesus thank you Jesus God we thank you for your grace your unmerited kindness towards us, your willingness to step into the dirt and insert yourself into our life. We thank you for the but God that you have made a way where there was no way and you have called us righteous. You've brought us out of the dirt. You've brought us into your glorious light. 